The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individuals participating in the podcast. Our team of producers reached out repeatedly to Gene and Liberty Kasem to participate in this story. A lawyer for Gene told us this isn't a good time for Gene to speak. Liberty did not respond to our requests. Over the years, Gene has denied any allegations of abuse. At number 21 on American Top 40 this week, a song that's been around for five weeks by a man who, while he was living in Nashville, Tennessee, covered the music scene there for Billboard magazine. Today, he makes his home in Key West, Florida, and he sings about Margaritaville. In the early 1970s, life is going well for Casey Kasem. His hair is a bit longer. His skin is bronze from California's year-round sun. He wears hip, stylish clothes that fit his celebrity persona. But before the decade ends, a dark cloud will come over Casey's family, the family he worked so hard to preserve. As soon as my father asked her to marry him, it was downhill from there. I'm Martin Cove, and this is Bitter Blood, Kasem versus Kasem, Episode 4. Casey Kasem has three kids he adores, a blockbuster show on the radio, and a house in the star-studded Bel Air neighborhood of Los Angeles. We would go on these long walks. His eldest daughter, Carrie. We lived in the hills, so we have to go way, way, way up this hill and down and around. And he would tell me, everybody who lived in these houses, Steven Spielberg lives there. Diane Carroll lives there. You know, and he would, he would tell me who they were because I didn't know. And then we'd go, we'd keep going down and around the hill and we'd stop and we'd eat our cheese sandwiches. And I remember I would I, I put these little like bricks together so my dad could sit down and have a seat. Carrie's childhood is overshadowed by frequent arguments between her mom, Linda, and Casey. When she's seven, her parents sit her and her two siblings down for a serious talk. My mom was on the right side. My dad was on the left. We were outside the house, and we were sitting on this wall, this little brick wall. And uh, my mom was holding my sister and my dad with my brother, and they said that they were going to get a divorce, and they explained it. And my brother and sister started crying. And I thought, this is going to be better. I'm, I'm literally, I'm seven years old, and I'm thinking, this is going to be better. That's how I reacted because it was so volatile, and the yelling was so much. A year later, Casey sits the kids down for another talk. I remember clear as day, the day my dad told me he was going to marry Jean. We were on the beach in Malibu, and he said, I have something to tell you guys. We're getting married. And I was, I just, what? What? I don't know, I just... I just thought it was too soon. It was just, wait, Dad, you know, it's not been that 
long. That's what it felt like. I have a couple good memories of, of Jean. She was the first person to get me out in the ocean on a boogie board. And it was me and her, and we were on a boogie board, and we caught a wave, and it was the first time ever. And I thought, oh, she's so cool. She took us to a toy store, and we could pick out a toy. And then she uh, she actually got me a, a bird, but she wanted me to name it Casey Bird. Uh, okay. But she actually got me a parakeet. And I was like, wow, she's she likes us. Casey and Jean's wedding in December of 1980 is a giant Hollywood event, officiated by Reverend Jesse Jackson. There were 500 people here. We had our friends and family. It was the most incredible day of my life. But that glamorous day is traumatic for Casey's kids. They learn their new stepmother has forbidden them from attending their own father's wedding. Kiri's mother, Linda Kasem. Not only were they not invited to the wedding, they were not even told about the wedding. I told them because it was on television. It was such a big deal. She had the big deal, The I think it was the Bel Air Hotel, and Jesse Jackson married them, and they had hundreds of white doves taking off. It was all about Jean and being a big star. Carrie remembered that their father told them that after the fact, you couldn't be there because it was a school night. But then they saw the videos and saw little kids there. There was a flower girl. There were all kinds of little ones involved in it and and there as guests. How would you feel if that was your father and you're watching on TV while even some of your friends are there? that was heartbreaking for us because, you, you know, it was all over the news. I know my dad regretted that because we talked about it many times, and I know that was a decision that he regretted. I have to say to this day, I am so ashamed of Casey for not standing up to that behavior. After the wedding, Jean's treatment of her stepchildren gets worse. She came along and uh, didn't want those kids anywhere near her. But when Casey was around, she acted as though she did. And, and then she made so many demands and criticisms of the kids and of all the things that she put in Casey's ear. It was a nightmare. It was a nightmare. And my kids were, they were little children seven, six, and four, five. They're being treated like they're not wanted. I was in a lot of emotional pain and not knowing how to handle it, going back and forth from my mom's house on the weekdays to my dad's house on the weekends, and the abuse from Jean was immeasurable. I mean, it was nonstop. So when we come back to my mom's, my mom had to deal with like a bunch of traumatized kids. One Christmas, the kids were always with me on Christmas because they had other things to do. So Casey called and said, we're taking the kids to Michigan to my mother's for Christmas. So we went shopping for gifts, got them all the clothes they would need for the cold weather. And he called and he said, I hope you're not packing too much. 
I said, well, they each have their little, it was like a little Mickey Mouse suitcases. And then we have our box of gifts. He called me back. Well, you didn't tell me you were bringing a big box. We don't have room. We can't bring a big box. I said, well, Casey, the kids wanted to have gifts for you and everybody. No, we're not taking it. They can only take it. We're only there two days. Christmas morning was so strange. You could imagine. I think it was Carrie. Carrie called me crying. We don't have any presents. My dad is mad because we don't have any presents. Why don't we have any presents for everybody? I said, oh, sweetie, no. He told me not to put him on the phone. I talked to him, and he was in his stern, angry, what kind of mother are you voice. I... I just said, Casey, do you remember the conversation that we had? Our presents are here. They're under the tree because you didn't want to take a big box with you. I don't remember that at all. And Jean is very insulted. She's crying in her room. Can you imagine your little children having to be subjected to this all the time? If they wanted to see their father... The trauma takes its toll, and Carrie starts acting out. I was the troublemaker in the family. I fought a lot with my brother and sister. You know, in eighth grade, I got kicked out. I got sent to Ojai Valley School, and I wasn't doing that well in school, but it was really great to get away. I actually got to take my horse. In PE, I got to ride my horse. It was the best thing ever except I got kicked out because I went off campus with a couple girls who were drinking. I didn't drink, but I still got kicked out. Eager to help, Linda sends Carrie to a new boarding school. Getting sent to boarding school was the best thing my mom ever did for me. I get sent to a more (laughs) very, very, very strict school, um, 13 hours Uh, away from my house, up on a hill, and literally an hour away. It's in the middle of a forest, an hour away from any civilization, and then two hours away from a city. So I'm, I'm up there, and actually I have to say, it got me through high school. I got decent grades, and it was probably another amazing thing that my mom did. For two years, I got away from all the emotional turmoil that I was going through. The school was a mix of accredited education and therapy. And, you know, it wasn't easy to get through. If you got in trouble, you dug ditches all day long. You chopped wood. You were shoveling snow. I mean, it was hard work. But it got me through high school, and I grew up a bit. When Kiri returns home, she resigns herself to a strained relationship with Jean and her sister Liberty. But she keeps a close connection with her father, who is always loving, but tough. You know, I, when I turned 16, and I thought I was going to get a car. Because here I am, you know, it's like we're living in Beverly Hills. My friends have cars. You know, I could take Mike and Julie to, to school. Of course, you know, I'm going to get a car. And a few weeks before my 16th birthday, I, I kept asking my dad for hints about what he was going to get me. Now, my dad was not a big gift giver at all, at all. I kept asking him, give me, give me a hint. And he did say, okay, it's silver. Like, okay, whatever. Not my favorite color, but that's fine. I'll, uh, silver's fine. A week goes by, you know, 
Dad, give me another hint. Give me another hint. All right. It's metal. And uh, the last hint was, it's got keys. And I knew it. I'm like, oh, so excited. <laughs> Telling my friends I'm getting a car. And so my 16th birthday rolls along. And he's living in the Beverly Wilshire, which is a hotel right on. It's, it's where they film Pretty Woman, which is funny. But we go we go there. My brother, my sister, me, we're... we're, we're we knock on the door, we go in, and there's a big box sitting in the living room. And I'm like, oh, okay. I'm like, maybe that's, you know, maybe, I don't know, maybe my keys are buried in it, or maybe it's something to go with the car. I didn't know. I'm like, okay, well, we'll just, we'll go for this. So I remember opening it, and then there's this big white styrofoam, and my brother and sister actually, it's so heavy, have to come over and help me lift whatever the hell it is out of the box. And we remove the styrofoam, and there it is. It's silver, it's metal, and it's got keys. It was my brand new typewriter. That's my dad. Casey not only instills a strong work ethic in his kids, but also his love of broadcasting. Kiri and her brother, Mike, both go on to work in TV and radio. Mike and I worked together on a couple different shows, one being America's Funniest Home Videos for Europe. Thank you. Thank you very much, everybody. And you know what? I want to thank you, too, as well, Carrie. For what? You remember that Christmas present you gave me? Well, I finally got around to opening it. Oh, the Vanilla Ice Greatest Hits album. No, not that. The Cheese of the Month package. We had a blast doing that. We did a full year's worth. Oh, gosh, that was... My dad was on set. and It was, it was very cool. It was very cool. Uh, we also did a couple pilots, and we worked on MTV together in Southeast Asia. We were in Singapore for a year. Kiri returns to the U.S. and creates a name for herself, hosting several local radio shows and a syndicated show with Ricky Rackman called Racing Rocks. And now it's time for the Motorcycle Minute. Here is the always lovely and talented Kerry Kasem. Kiri also hosts UFC fights and does interviews for E! Entertainment. In 2009, she lands her own national syndicated rock radio show, co-hosting with Nikki Six from Motley Crue. Uh, Nikki Six here with Gary Kasem, uh, doing like some highlights over the last four years. Uh, we're going to play a break. We have for a show you. called Six Sense. It's number one in several markets. We are syndicated. We are on Sirius. We're in different countries. I'm traveling the United States of America with Motley Crue. And whoever they're on tour at the time, whether it was Kiss or Poison or, um, oh, the New York Dolls, uh, Alice Cooper, whatever. I mean, I'm in heaven. I was a, you know, hair band 80s metal kid. And I have my dream job. Meanwhile, Mike plants his roots in Singapore, dominating airwaves as a radio and television host. And Julie, Casey and Linda's youngest, becomes a physician's assistant. In 2003, she announces her engagement, and her parents start planning the wedding. Julie goes out of her way to make sure that her stepsister, Liberty, feels included. Julie went crazy trying to find a dress that Jean would okay. And then it became obvious that Jean was not going to okay any dress for Liberty to wear to the wedding, because Jean just simply could not let her come to this wedding. And I know Liberty was excited about it at first, about being a, uh, being in the wedding. She was going to be one of 
her sister. So we had to let that go. And we knew that Jean wouldn't come to the wedding, but they were nice and gracious, and they did invite her. So when the wedding happened the day of, we were at the Bel Air Bay Club, beautiful. It was a gorgeous wedding, on and on, and Casey did not bring a cell phone. Very smart. I don't even know if he had one then. But then the next day, the day after the wedding, I got a call from the Bel Air Bay Club. There were something like, what, 56 phone calls? I think I'm just plucking this from the air, but uh, messages that Casey has to rush home because Jean has broken her arm. And this was her excuse all the time, no matter if he went anywhere. I think that's why he didn't carry a cell phone. For years, Casey struggles to maintain two separate lives, one with Carrie, Mike, and Julie, and one with Jean and Liberty. Unfortunately, my dad married a woman who considered us the old family, not part of her family. She made it very clear we were the old family, and it just got worse and worse and worse. Tensions eventually get so bad, it becomes almost comical. We're in the car, and Gene has just gotten through screaming at him on the cell phone, like he had this car phone. And you could hear her just screaming at him, and he's like, but honey, Gene, and just screaming, because that's how she spoke to him. And he gets off the phone, and he's, you know, kind of pretending everything's okay, but we could hear it all. And we're like, Dad, you know, when's enough enough? Why don't you tell her, stop yelling at me? Why don't you get get in her face and say, enough's enough? And he just looks at us and he's like, it's going to get better. It's, it's going to get better. And all of us take a pause and we all start laughing. Like all of us start laughing because it's 15, 20 years of it's going to get better. And it's just gotten worse and worse and worse. Carrie makes repeated attempts to mend things with Jean so she can spend more time with her dad. Dad? Yes. Hey, it's Carrie. Hi, I'm fine. Hi, I'm fine. How are you? Good. Hey, I'm trying to get to Jean because uh, I actually am going to try a different approach with this whole thing. Um, and I just wanted to kind of, you know, I, I never uh, said I uh, was sorry that her mom died, so I just wanted to uh, talk to her. And tell her that. Okay. I, I think she may be resting, but if you want to hang it on? Well, I, I already called Liberty, and then, yeah, she said that she uh, couldn't talk right now. So just so you're aware of what I'm doing, so if she comes to you thinking I'm doing something else, that's all I'm doing. Okay, honey. All right, Dad, we'll try this. Okay. My dad was terrified of her. Terrified. And there was nothing we could do to help. Gene continues to block communication between Casey and his three kids as much as she can. At a conference in 2019, Casey's daughter Julie recalls her fears of being isolated from her father. We knew that as my dad got more ill that we were going to be isolated from him. This was my stepmom's M.O. from the day she married him, even though they were married oh, many, 30 years plus, whatever. We just knew that this was coming down the pike. 
Years later, I remembered asking my dad, why would you marry a woman who hates your children? And he said he thought it would always get better, that she would love us, that she was insecure, but that she would grow to love us. I mean, that was always his answer. It never happened. In 2007, Casey is diagnosed with Parkinson's disease. Carrie, Mike, and Julie know they have to act quickly to get power of attorney to make sure their father gets proper health care and they can continue to see him. My dad agreed, and he was so afraid to go anywhere where he might be known. We found a UPS store with a, a, a younger person that wouldn't know my dad. And that's actually how it came to be. He did not want this getting back to Gene. So we go there, and my sister and her husband, since they're in the medical field, my, my sister's husband's a doctor at UCLA. She's a physician's assistant, so she was the, the first for the power of attorney, and then I came second, then my brother, and that was you know how medical decisions would be made. Gene tells the CBS show 48 Hours that this meeting marks the beginning of the children's elaborate plot to take control of Casey and his money. He was taken to a UPS store and he was asked to sign his life away while he was on medications. He had sutures in his head. He did not have his glasses on and he was out of it. Gene came out and said that he was under the influence and he had surgery. Well, we talked to his doctor and he said, absolutely not. That he had a hair transplant weeks before he was not on medication and he was not under any kind of influence of anything. At the UPS store meeting, Casey grants his kids power over his medical decisions, but not his finances, which they never asked for. That changes four years later when he's diagnosed with Lewy body dementia. Gene has Casey sign over control of all of his affairs, including power of attorney, to her. So in 2011, you know, my dad's trust and the will and estate plans and power of attorney all got changed. Yet, Gene had sent a letter to the IRS stating why she hadn't paid her taxes that year, And she got a gerontologist, Dr. Anderson, to state that my dad had dementia and was unable to do his finances or anything else. So funny that he couldn't pay his taxes, didn't understand his finances, and he has horrible dementia, but he can change his entire will and estate plan, his trust, and power of attorney. Around the same time, Gene starts isolating Casey from his oldest children. Desperate to see their father, Mike and Julie sign an agreement with Gene that will allow them to see him, with limitations. My sister and brother signed a deal with the devil. They signed a contract allowing them to see my dad once or twice a month with an armed guard in the room. But what it also did was not allow them to go to court and fight in any capacity for my dad. So they couldn't fight for a conservatorship. They couldn't fight for a power of attorney. They couldn't do anything that pitted them against my stepmother in court. And at first, I was really upset about it. And I I didn't know what to do. I was really angry. 
And then I realized, you know, it came from a good place. They just wanted to see dad. But I, I could not on any term sign a deal that would only allow me to see my dad once or twice a month for 20 minutes with an armed guard in the room with no cameras, no computers, no phone. My dad was not an inmate. And besides, I didn't trust Jean. And I was right. They never got to see dad anyway until I won in court. Kira is ready to take on her stepmother in court and publicly. There was a point where I knew I was my father's daughter when I had to fight for him. Well, I thought, great, go for it. She, first of all, the way she had been treated all of her life, she needed to get out the energy that that, that horrible stuff built, you know, it builds up in you. you. You can't, where do you put it? She did, she put it in positive ways. Let's change this world so that what happened to us will not happen to another person. Kiri's former boyfriend and my son, Jesse Cove, says Kiri was determined to protect her father, no matter what the cost. Kiri even, she left her job and she left that to fight, to fight this battle with her dad. And... At the time, I was like, oh, you can't do that. Like, that's your income. You can't. She just said, I have to do this. I, I feel so called to do this. To, to, you know, I have to fight to see my dad. It was this roller coaster up and down all the time. And, I mean, there were so many nights where she would just cry. Oh, fuck, it makes me, like, emotional when I think about it. Musician Jason Thomas Gordon grew up with Carrie. When Carrie feels there's an injustice, there's a fire there. And in... You can't, you can't go near it. I marched. I gave speeches. I was up at the Capitol trying to change the law so this wouldn't happen to anybody else. I was working on my radio show and I was in court every other week. I was going to do everything to see my dad again. And I didn't care if I lost everything. In May 2014, the Kasem family feud reaches its tipping point when Jean takes Casey from the Santa Monica Hospital in the middle of the night. Desperate to find her father, Carrie reaches out to Logan Clark, whose hardened, smoky voice reflects his life's work, relentlessly tracking kidnapped children around the world. I just like chasing bad guys. Somebody's got to do it. As a seasoned private investigator for over four decades, Logan knows this case will be fraught with obstacles. This was a traveling crime. So on the bad side, it's easy for a sheriff or a district attorney's office to throw it off on the next county that it went through or the next state that the crime went through because she was on the road. The good part is that you actually have more to choose from as far as more states, more counties, judges, DA's office, that would might take it up. So it's a double-edged sword. When you have a moving crime like that, no matter what it is, it's like getting a fly swatter and to swat a fly. You do not swat at the fly when it's in the air. You wait until it lands. We just couldn't tell where this fly was going to land. No 
idea where their father is. Casey Kasem, host of American Top 40, has gone missing. Casey Kasem, the radio legend and the voice of Scooby-Doo's Shaggy, is missing, and his children have no idea where he's The gone. whole thing in this investigation was we were running against time. The news was coming out literally several times a day, and we were trying to find where Casey was and his health was deteriorating, we knew, the longer that it went. The pressure that was building was incredible. Every information that we got, we would literally just deliver it to the attorneys by fax, by phone, any way we could. Finally, Carrie gets an emergency hearing, granting her temporary medical guardianship over her father. Jean's attorney shows up without Jean. The judge asks, What's going on? So Jean's lawyer gave three different answers. Uh, she didn't tell me where she was going. She's out of the country. Uh, we don't know when we're coming back. Uh, uh, I mean, and the judge just straight up said, where's Casey Kasem? And he looked at him and said, I don't know. And the judge said, you don't know where this very sick man is? You don't know where your client is? And... Jean's lawyer just, he just couldn't say. Carrie and her attorney prevail in court. And that's when I was granted temporary conservatorship or guardianship over my father. And APS, Adult Protective Services, was ordered to work with me and, and same with the police. But the court battle means nothing if Carrie can't find Casey. Jesse Cove says it was a horrible time. You know, when we were going through this, at home, I mean, home was sanctuary, right? You know, you could come home and, and be at peace, but it never stopped for Carrie. There was just so many times where she was crying and trying to figure out what to do. And, you know, I obviously just being a man wanted to try and fix the situation, but there's only so much that I could do other than just hold her and let her cry. And, you know, she was, that was the hardest thing about this. I really feel for her was that she was really alone in this battle. Like, yes, she had support around her, but it was really her doing this on her own, figuring it out, and, and enrolling people in this mission of hers. Finally, after a few days of searching for her dad, Carrie gets a surprise tip from an unlikely source. I got this Facebook message from Jean's nephew, Tommy Thompson. He said, and this is, quote, I'm reading it, I know you don't know me, but I'm Jean's nephew, and I know she's planning on taking him to an Indian reservation. So here she was planning on taking him to the Tulalip Indian Reservation in Washington, Washington State. And there was an airstrip where they were going to fly him into. And they were going to wait for the passports there because my dad didn't have an updated passport. So she was actually trying to get him out of the country at this point. I had an entire team working on this thing. We were calling all through the day and the night, airports, everything that we could think of, ambulance companies, private plane companies, and trying to track where they were going. This is like freaking eight o'clock at night. We literally drove around, I drove to like Burbank Airport. I felt like a spy. I drove in there, parked my car, walked into this private lounge, and I remember just sitting there, you know, and watching these planes come in. And I remember seeing like this one plane where this 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 uh, guy was coming out in a wheelchair and I thought it was him. I literally called her, I said, this is what's happening. And she goes, oh my God, it's him. 
And, you know, we got there and she came and they had gone to these other airports and it, it turned out it was someone else who was like medically brought in or whatever. And, you know, there was a there was a point in time that night where Carrie felt like she may have lost him. We got a lead that they were in Vegas. And then we dug into that and we found out they were at the Vidara Hotel. I got a Facebook message from somebody named Vegas Sanchez. This was May 12th at 8.59 p.m. And it reads, quote, This is not a joke. I think I may know where your father is. Jean, or she says she, booked three rooms under Liberty Kasem. They checked out today from the Vidara Hotel in Las Vegas. And the end quote. It, It goes on to say, I'm sorry. I called the police as soon as I heard he was missing. But I'm not sure if they took me seriously or not. We were told by a couple of the employees there that they had gotten three suites in the hotel. They put Casey in one, Jean and her daughter in another one, and I'm not sure what the third suite was for. In court papers filed later, Jean says she took Casey on vacation for some peace and privacy to escape, quote, the theatrical antics of Carrie Kasem. True crime journalist and Kasem family friend Melissa McCarty investigated the police report and court depositions to piece together what happened while Jean was on the road. So we learned that Jean's on the road with two women she's hired to be Casey's caretakers. There's Rhonda, who's a bookkeeper, and then Susan, a pre-op nurse. And her main job is to handle paperwork before a patient's surgery. It is not to care for a very sick man outside of the hospital. Now, the police report says Susan told Jean she hadn't worked as a charge nurse at a convalescent home for years and that she was also paid about $75 an hour. And we later found out that's about $35 less than the rate of a registered nurse. Jean denied my father proper care throughout the entire sickness, but this is the worst. Over $35 an hour extra, he didn't get the care he needed. And then she said no to an ambulance taking him anywhere, no to a medevac, a flight that he needed. Instead, she puts him in a car and drives him everywhere. The following account of Rhonda and Susan's trip with Casey, Jean, and Liberty is taken from that same police report and court depositions. Their last names have been left out to protect their privacy. These are selections from Susan's statements, read by an actor. I kept asking Jean for Casey's discharge papers and blood work so that I could plan for his treatment. She said that her attorney would bring the paperwork and people would come to do the blood work. Susan and Rhonda arrive at the Kasem house and there is no paperwork. Jean tells the women Casey will see a doctor when they arrive in Las Vegas. The plan is to fly there, a short 45-minute flight from Los Angeles. But when Jean isn't ready for the flight, she announces they'll all be driving instead. She said there was a change of plans, which was news to me because I had never been made aware of the previous plans. 
From around 11 at night until 5 a.m., Susan and Rhonda drive with Liberty and Casey. Gene follows in a separate car. On the way, they stop at a gas station and at Jack in the Box for Liberty to smoke cigarettes and get some food. I do remember her shouting over Rhonda's face. And two tacos! Meanwhile, Casey has nothing to eat or drink for over six hours. Casey looks scared, and there were no verbals. Susan, Rhonda, and Liberty get to the hotel in Las Vegas before Gene. At this point, five days have now passed from the time Casey is taken from the facility in Santa Monica to the time they arrive in Las Vegas, and he's in very bad shape. You know, the trip was clearly unadvised, as confirmed by medical workers there at the convalescent home, and now almost a week on the road, it's clearly taken a toll on Casey's health. Susan describes moving Casey's body from the car to the wheelchair. She can tell he's terrified from his face and his shaking body. It was the most traumatic event of my life. It was horrible. He was particularly vulnerable and helpless at that moment, and he was terribly frightened, and I was terribly frightened, and Rhonda was terribly frightened, and the only one who did not seem to realize the gravity of the situation was Liberty, who for some reason fixated on a hat, and I believe it was to hide his his identity, you know, to put him in disguise. As soon as she's able, Susan gives Casey water and ensure. When Jean arrives in the hotel, she's not alone. John Paul Gressy is by her side. The same man Kasem employees reported seeing around the house and Malibu condo on a regular basis. Susan confronts Jean. I asked, where is the doctor? Liberty said that the doctor would be there soon. I noticed the skin in Casey's coccyx area starting to tear and open and saw traces of blood in his catheter bag. Jean says that everyone needs to rest, particularly Susan. Susan sleeps for two hours. I woke up and heard Casey moaning. I texted Rhonda and asked her where everybody was. I didn't know where Jean and Liberty were staying. Rhonda texted back, pack your bags. Jean came into the room and I told her that this was beyond the scope of my employment and that Casey is in pain and he needs medical care. Rhonda and Susan tell Jean the whole situation is wrong and they're going back to Los Angeles. It is a trauma that I will never recover from. I'm sorry. Once home, an emotionally drained Susan calls Adult Protective Services and files a report. She and Rhonda never hear from Jean again. They're also never paid. My dad did not deserve to suffer, especially at the hands of his own wife and daughter. Adult Protective Services is on alert, but after Casey disappears from Vegas, the search again goes cold. Back in Los Angeles, Kiri and her team plan the next move. I mean, at this point, I'm thinking, take my house, take my career, take, take my money. The lawyers are taking it anyway. 
I just have to find my dad. Where's my dad? 